I didn't know my mic was on. I was laughing that you broke a string. I know. First day. <laughs> Brand new guitar, broke a string. The Lord wants to keep him humble. Congratulations for making it here this morning, everyone. The treacherous roads out. I was driving here, I thought, I'm going to do my Christian duty. Risking my life, and nobody else is coming because there's sermons on the internet. There's ways, you know, and here we are. Proud of you all coming downtown on a snowy day like this. It's blizzard-like outside. Never really understood that term. But that's what they say nowadays. It's not blizzard, it's just blizzard-like. There's a specific thing for blizzard, and everything else is blizzard-like. Anyways, I uh, prepared some thoughts and challenges for you from uh, chapter 16 of Acts. So if you have a Bible and you're willing to turn there, it's a book after John, three quarters of the way through uh, the Bible, um, to Acts. As a community, we've been studying the second half of Acts as it chronicles the life and the ministry of the Apostle Paul. As I've said before, it's hard to overstate the significance of his ministry how the Lord mightily used him to spread the gospel. Because he kind of pioneered a shift in, uh, in the history of our religion, his faith. And, uh, it, it went from something being centered primarily on a race and a chosen, people, uh, chosen race and a nation to something that was more of a chosen people, centered around a person. He, he pioneered this movement centered around Christ that went from something that was uh, mainly exclusive to something now that's mainly inclusive. A faith centered on Christ that welcomes people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And it was very difficult for him to do that. Ultimately leads to you and I being here today. So I'm having a great time studying this and and learning more about this. And so um, I'd like to read the story from you that basically where we left off in um, Acts 16. And... uh, Seems reasonable to me to start from verse 19. So if you're willing to and able to stand with me, please stand for the reading. Uh Uh-oh. That's life on the bleachers. I know. Uh, I'm sure Rod mentioned the the drama with the the, uh, gal that was possessed by a demon. And so, um, at the moment the spirit left her, the, her owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money off her was gone, and they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought him before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews, and they're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept and to practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, okay? And uh, the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and to be beaten. And after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the prison guard was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in shackles. It was about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening in, and suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, 
All the prison doors flew open, and everybody's chains came off. The jailer woke up, and he saw the prison doors open, and so he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for the lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and the others in his house. And at that hour of night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and his family were baptized, and the prison guard brought them into his house and set a meal before, set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had become to believe in God, he and his whole family. This is the very word of God. I know it's uh, been just such an encouraging story uh, from Paul's conversion through his travels through Turkey and even now as he reaches Europe. Uh, Just something that's just been so amazing and encouraging to me is this story. Primarily because of how easy it's been for Paul. It's been such a breeze for him. As he's gone from town to town, he's just so well received and... There's really nothing that ever goes wrong for it. It's just, everything's just so simple. And he's fully funded and he has all the, the wind at his back, you know. It's just such an easy thing. Man, it would be such a different story if that were true. Uh, a lot less encouraging for me if that were true, that's for sure. I uh, have a verse I'd like to remind you of from 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8 says, We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about our troubles that we had in, in Turkey. We were under such great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. We had thought that we received the sentence of death and despaired life itself. This happened to us so that we would trust God and not in our own strength. We were under such great pressure that we were far beyond our ability to even endure it. And we thought we'd receive the sentence of death. It's encouraging to me to see, uh, you know, a superhero of our faith say stuff like that. Because sometimes I feel like it's just a struggle. Sometimes I feel like it's never going to stop snowing. The winter is going to stay forever. I feel like that we're just fighting in in even just how to, to be a sensible Christian and how to... Uh, work out faith in 2018 and how complicated it can be. It's encouraging to know that it has been complicated. It has been clunky. It has been organic and earthen and tricky from the beginning. It's not strange if we're experiencing some pushback, if we're experiencing some, something that we have to wrestle with. Don't think that's strange. They killed our champion. And they killed all of his guys. And they killed Paul. They tried to kill him several times. Don't think it's strange when we experience pushback or experience hardship. Think it's strange when you don't. Think it's strange if your faith can fit into a tiny, tight, tidy little clean and crispy box that gets put on the shelf and 
taken off when it's convenient. Think it's strange when your life gets farther and farther away from your faith. When real life, when real pain, when real struggle is something that is, is not really interacting with our faith. That's not what we see in these stories. That's not what we see laid out for us in the Bible. And if that's true for you, it's not really going to help the cause either because everyone else in the world has real problems. And they need to know that we follow somebody called the great physician who says that the healthy don't need a doctor. And we are partnering with God who's always trying to go into the broken, earthen, gritty places and say, I want to make a repair. I want to get in this mess with you and fix something starting with the brokenness inside of us and working into the brokenness of our world. I say all that because we talk a lot about mission. Uh, Lately, uh, for sure, we've been talking about mission and being on a mission. Um, But a word that we haven't talked about all that much is a word called conversion. Witnessing and, and conversion all kind of, I think, go hand in hand with mission. And so I want to talk about that a little bit this morning. One of the reasons why I don't talk about it that much is because I made it weird. I don't think that conversion is weird. I just, I made it really weird. I think that there was just something that happened in my mind that that went unchecked for a really long time when I was a kid. I was told, uh, you know, that there's a very narrow way of how to have a conversion experience or how to witness to somebody. And... It had to do with uh, somehow working into a conversation how someone was going to die or when, it was, when they were going to die. As if that wasn't hard enough, then I had to do some sort of kung fu with the Bible to sort of show them how to get to heaven and avoid hell and then hopefully follow that up with a prayer. Um, and the thing is, it never really worked for me. I don't know. It's worked for a lot of people. and I understand that that's a good thing and it, it, it can work, but it never worked for me. I am a clunky person, especially when it's off the cuff, and uh, I tend to make it more awkward in hopes to make it less awkward, and that only happens half of the time, at best. Um, anyways, I could tell you stories about, yeah, I mean, I went to conferences growing up, and they'd train you about how to do this, and then send out 3,000 people to one shopping mall, and and try and have them talk to, you know, you walk up to somebody and you've got it written all over your face that you're with everybody else. And, and they just like shut you down immediately. And it's really traumatic and you count it as persecution. No. <laughs> uh, and I put this pressure on me because I, and I never really had a good experience with that. And I think that that led to me putting more pressure on myself as like, I'm not valid or legitimate Christian unless I can do this. And I really started to make an idol out of this conversion experience and started to think, uh, if only I could be like that person, like I'd hear like my brother or parents or somebody say, you know, I prayed with uh, Tommy at the basketball game and he wanted to become a Christian and I'd be jealous, not happy for Tommy. I'd be jealous for them that they got to do that. It's my friend. As if there's like a 13th apostles, you know, ship waiting for me in heaven or, or some sort of like plaque that you get or, or, or an upper level Christian, 
you know, elite group, are the people who have led someone to the Lord, for sure you're going to heaven. There's no way you're not going to heaven if you were a part of helping people become Christians. And it just got weird. And, uh, you know, and I, and I say all that just because there's so much pressure wrapped up in all of this. And maybe you share a little bit of that with me. But it seems like Paul's bringing something more to the table with, with, in this chapter. Uh, two stories I see of him talking with somebody, having a converting experience, and, and he's bringing something trustworthy and compelling. He's bringing some wisdom, and, and he's adjusting on the fly to who he's talking to. And, and I know that witnessing or, or conversion is more than just about our ego. And about our pride and about our ability to get more street cred with the angels or whatever. It's, it's more than that. It's about somebody finding their place in the family of God. It's about somebody finally laying down their life before the Lord. It's about something way bigger than any of us. And so if I can just point out a few things this morning that I think would be wise based on context, based on relationships that you can take with you, then maybe we can, as we are on mission, be a little bit more efficient and wise when we talk to people and see more people come into a right place in relationship with God. So I have a couple thoughts I'd like to share backing up about uh, Lydia, the gal that Paul met on the the riverside earlier in the chapter that Rod mentioned last week. And then a couple of thoughts uh, on the jailer um, in Philippi that he meets in the middle of the night or whatever. But before I do that, I thought it would also be kind of encouraging if uh, a couple of people shared the story uh, of how they were converted and how it happened for them. So I'd like to introduce you to Tim Bassett. I'm, I'm pretty sure that you're here. If, okay. <laughs> I didn't see you earlier. I was like, oh, is Tim here? Go, brother. Gradual process of falling in love with Jesus and submitting to His plan for my life, and. Man, it's been bugging me, and I'm going to take maybe two or three minutes longer than I did last time, so sorry, Dan. Uh, This has been bugging me early in the week, and then last night it kind of overcame me a little bit. Why why the heck did I type it up? Um, Yeah, maybe it's insecurity that, like, Dan, you know, know, I was just like, Dan Dan needs me to share my testimony. I got to do a great job, and I don't know. So maybe there's some insecurity in it, and I just wanted to say it right, but... I really think the reason, and this kind of came out last night in my heart, and God put it on my heart to share, so whether it's insecurity, insecurity or not, I hope it, it, it helps some of you. I want to be careful when I share my testimony in front of a bunch of Christians. It, it feels a little bit more organic, I guess, when I'm just hanging out with people who don't know Jesus, and there's not this pressure to put it up right and careful, but I'm trying to be careful in front of the church. And I, I think that's a good thing, and I think it's good that I typed it up, and um, But just to give context really quick, and then I'll I'll read it. Two reasons that are stuck in my head for why I typed it up. One is, my story is that I grew up in the church. I grew up in the church, and again, it was a gradual process, and I think we we minimize that. And Dan's going to talk about that, but I think we minimize if we grew up in the church. 
Jesus died and, and was raised and, and formed the church so that this could be my testimony. Why do we belittle that? Why do we make less of that if we don't have a huge transforming experience, but it was a gradual winning over of our hearts by Jesus? So that's one thing for what it's worth. And then two, you know, I want to make that clear in my testimony. And then two, man, I feel like sometimes we do grow up in the church and we, we just kind of wait for God to do something or we just assume that, we're Christian, right? We've heard this a million times. Um, but our life should be marked by repentance, right? It should be marked by repentance. Like, I, we should have a season of our life and probably every day where we wake up and say, man, I hate my sin. I hate it. And I really love the way Jesus does it. I love Jesus' ways, and, and we're transformed by that, and we repent and we turn. So um, those are two things that I just want to be careful that I touch on, and that's why I typed it up. Uh, to share with you, so. My name is Tim, and I grew up in a small town in the UP. I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up in a, a charismatic church. I grew up never really questioning that God was real, never questioning that he loved me, and that Jesus was my shepherd. Honestly, I can't remember a time in my life that I didn't talk to God regularly. My church did an incredible job of drawing me to the altar to talk to God, ask for prayer, and seek after Jesus on a personal level. So every Sunday, I would listen to the sermon, hear the call to come to the altar, and I'd courageously walk down to the front of the church and confess my sin or ask for prayer. I was always curious about God and the Bible, and as I got older, I started to pay more and more attention to the sermons on Sundays. Church was a place where my faith was alive. I must have said the sinner's prayer and asked Jesus into my heart 20 times. I was baptized when I was 13. I was constantly exposed to the gospel message. This is the blessing of growing up in a Christian home. But there was a problem. I had one foot in the church and one foot in another life. I wasn't living for Jesus consistently. Sure, I'd go to church on Sunday and respond to the altar calls. I'd go to Bible camp and have emotionally charged and genuinely convicting experiences that I knew were the work of the Holy Spirit. But none of it was translating to major changes in my life. My soul wanted to change. I hated my sin, but I still wasn't completely walking away from my old life. I wasn't having a life-transforming experience that I heard about people having overseas at missionary uh, on missionary trips where a, a drug lord turned into a preacher basically overnight. Then another really significant thing happened in my faith. I found community. I joined a camp ministry and suddenly was thrust into an environment full of young believers who were on the same journey as me. I didn't have that growing up or maybe I just didn't seek it out. But suddenly I was being held accountable to and encouraged in my commitment to Jesus. God's call on my life started to become more and more clear and intense. I started to live into new life. I was still wrestling with residual habits from my old life, and I still do. But something else was happening as well. I started to realize that even though I was wa a waffling, wavering, wandering, inconsistent rebel who was steeped in sin and couldn't help myself, God had never stopped pursuing me. In fact, the more I struggled with sin, the more he pressed in. The more I repeated the same stupid mistakes, the more powerfully he would come back with grace. And the more I wrestled with questions about my faith, the more he grew me.
but it was so gradual. I was being loved into new life. I was being covered by grace. It took 20 plus years for me to almost fully surrender to God's ways and God's love. I'm still blown away and filled with joy when I reflect on the powerful conversions that I know are true in God's word and the ones that I've seen for myself. I'm not discouraged that that wasn't my experience, though. I'm actually overwhelmed by God's relentless pursuit of me over a long period of time. I'm also grateful for all the significant days of God's gradual process of transformation in my life, especially the day that I entered into a community of believers that pointed me back to my baptism with their words and their lives. So, in reflection of that powerful illustration that baptism gives us, I'll say it all again today in front of this community of believers. My testimony is Jesus Christ. Through his life, death, and resurrection, and by the activity of the Holy Spirit moving and working through his body, which I'm a part, God loved me into new life. And he continues to do this, and I'll trust him to finish the work. Thanks, Tim. I'm sure a lot of people share that story. Uh, cast your eyes with, with me, if you will, to verse 13 to um, thirteen to 15. And uh, maybe remember last week, Rod sharing a little bit about Paul's interaction with a gal named Lydia on the, on the riverbanks um, in Philippi. Just to remind you, uh, Paul has sailed 150-some miles in two days. Pretty, pretty impressive. I think the same trip in Acts 20 takes him five days to go the other way. Um, but uh, he gets to Europe for the first time here and is in a place that's different, than any, different from any place they've ever been to before. But in contrast to that, they're bringing something that's different than this place has ever heard before. For example, they don't have even a community of Jewish people there that's big enough to have a synagogue. So plan B, when that happens in a city, is you go down to a, a lake or a river in the open air and, and, and pray together and keep it simple. So they go down to the river and start to find some people praying. This is where he meets this gal named Lydia. And I love this story uh, for multiple reasons, but one of them uh, seems to be that Lydia kind of mirrors a little bit of the same story as Tim. She's kind of on a gradual path. She's not somebody that was born a Jewish person. She's born a Gentile, but then in, in some way, shape, or form started to be a part of uh, being a God-fearer. I think it says a worshiper of God, or, or in that it's, it's, it's a term for when a Gentile person is um, believing in Yahweh and pursuing the Jewish faith. And then uh, she's continuing to do that. Let's say she's going down every Sabbath, praying the Shema with everybody, and uh, starting to really draw near to God. And it's this gradual, I don't know how long that took. It's this gradual process. And God's opening her heart. And he's stacking this dry wood for who knows how long. And then finally somebody, the right group of people come by, like Tim said, and had a match. Lit her heart on fire. And that's sometimes how it works. And I don't think we give that story enough credit. Because it is a little bit trickier. And it is harder to quantify how that works. But a lot of people that I talk to uh, in their 20s and 30s uh, have a similar story. Where they've 
just been open to God. They just, just I'm trying to find you. I've had some bad experiences. I'm not really sure where to go, but I'm, I'm trying. And then God just continues to pursue their heart and to woo them and to then finally bring the right people around and they land in a healthy spot and then say, you know what, this is my thing. I'm on this team. I'm a Christian, but I don't have the date on the second page of my Bible or whatever, but I'm here. And uh, so if, if that's kind of becoming a little bit more of a common experience, I think it's at least wise for us to open up some dialogue about how to be healthy and wise and, and to shepherd that well. And so I have two thoughts that I want to put out there that I think would be helpful that I see sort of reflected with Paul here. And i uh, love to keep talking about this with you in years to come. But the first thing that I see here is, is that Paul's life matches with his message. It's an implicit I know that I was getting in trouble with the implicit, but it's an implicit thing. Imagine this guy walking up to a group of people on the river, out of breath, bruised up, hasn't had a good day in a while. Unless you count good day as not dying. In that case, he's had a few good days. But uh, he's, he's standing before this gal, and she says, where are you from? And he's like, I've been traveling all over the place getting beat up, getting tortured, getting hunted, getting rejected by my own tribe. I have something that is so valuable to me that I can only communicate that in the proper proportion with how I'm living my life. Think about it. He stands there and says, I just sailed 150 miles for no reason. I'm not on vacation. I'm not... I'm not traveling, and then I might meet somebody who's kind of interested in the Lord, and then I'm open to talking to him. It's I am here to talk to you specifically about this. And it's a lot harder to believe Paul or someone like Paul when their life doesn't match up with the message. I mean, imagine if I, you know, or you walked into somebody and they said, hey, I want to tell you, I really believe in the forgiveness of, of Jesus for everybody. And then over a course of 45 minutes, they get a text on their phone, and they're like, oh, sheesh, it's my sister. I hate my sister. She has been, we have been strange for years and years, and I'll never forget what she did to me when we were kids and all this stuff. And all of a sudden, it's just sort of like, wait a minute. I mean, do you believe in forgiveness or not? How does that match? Now imagine you're talking to somebody who says, I believe in the forgiveness of God. When I was a kid, my sister and I had such a bad relationship, but we, over the course of years, have have really fought and wrestled with God about how to forgive. And he, through his power, has given us the ability to do that, and I believe he can do that for you too. I believe that he can do that for everybody. It's It's a lot different story when the life matches the message. Paul's life matches the message in proportion to the value of the message in his heart. You can see that all over pages of Scripture. Remember when he was talking to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 2 and 3, and he says at the very beginning, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Jesus Christ was crucified before your very eyes. Have you ever think about that verse? They weren't at the crucifixion. They only knew him. How do, you, how do you get to a point where you are, your life is matching the message so much that you can say to somebody, you know better, Jesus loves you this much because you've seen me love you that much. 
How powerful is it to say, you know, Jesus, even Jesus, his life matched the message. When he died for us all, he, he's trying to show us how far that he would go to show us how much God loves us, to show him what he'd be willing to do for our redemption and freedom. How much more so should we learn how to match the message ourselves? And I know that practice what you preach is like the most fundamental concept ever. But we live in a culture where that is not necessarily a shared value. We live in a culture, uh, in our religious culture in West Michigan, it is okay to have the right beliefs, to have the right sets, you know, of theology in your mind, and have this, this system set up, but then live kind of however. I mean, whatever happens, just, just live however you want to live. And that's hurting the cause. I'm not trying to have a heavy hand. I just think that we could take this, I, could, I think we could take it a lot farther. And the minimum for this is intentionality. So if right now you're thinking, you know what, yeah, my life doesn't really match anything about what I believe. It's just sort of a coincidence that I'm here. And I, I, I'd love to start getting into a practice of being a Christian in my regular life. And so what you're going to have to do is either take out a piece of paper or your iPhone notes or whatever and, and start to write down one thing that you can be intentional uh, with that's consistent with what you believe about God. Whether what, what I just mentioned about forgiveness might be something that you want to write down and just say, I am going to, for the next month, really seek to be a forgiving person because I believe that Jesus is freely forgiving all of us. And I want to be consistent and confirm that. I'm not going to punish people anymore when they cut me off in traffic. I'm going to forgive them. I'm not going to punish people anymore when they, when they uh, do something that pesters me. Or I'm not going to be petty with them. I'm going to forgive. I'm going to forgive my family members when they... When they mess with me and touch my sore tooth, uh, so to speak, and, 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 and cause me to feel pain, I'm going to learn how to forgive them because I want more than anything to be consistent with my message, and that's that Jesus is giving forgiveness to everybody. What if it's love, or, or, or you want to write down, I, I, I want to reflect and confirm the love of God, like the sun shining on everybody. I want to be somebody who freely loves doesn't matter what they did or, or what they look like or who talks to them or who doesn't, but I'm going to be somebody that, that, shows in, that intentionally shows love. And I guarantee you, as you start to be more uh, you know, consistent and have more intentionality with your faith, then that's going to give you something to talk about. It's going to bring a substance to whatever conversation you have about God that wasn't there before. So Paul's life matches with his message. Something to think about. The other thing I was thinking about about his interaction with Lydia is that he has an open heart to talk to her. Now I know that the verse says that God's opening the heart of Lydia to receive his message. I think that's beautiful. And I know that he's been working on her heart for quite some time. But don't make the mistake of thinking that Paul's heart wasn't being worked on as well. Our favorite Pharisee has been praying prayers for years. And one of the daily prayers uh, you know, of an ancient Pharisee is this. Bless you, God, King of the universe, for you have not made me a Gentile, you have not made me a slave, and you have not made me a woman. Let's not forget that this guy had a vision of a Macedonian man and just sailed 150 miles to meet him. 
surprise, surprise, the Macedonian man is actually a woman. And the plot thickens. Just when I thought I'd seen it all. A Gentile woman. And, and the, even go to the Middle East now. Their, their churches are, are your synagogue. They're separated. It's very common practice for them not to be interacting with, with women. And then it's very common practice not to interact with Gentiles in the first place. He's undoing and rebuilding so many uh, different patterns and things in his heart. It's no small thing for him to walk up to Lydia and without missing a beat, start to share with her the gospel. It's really hard for us to undo some of the preconceived notions and judgments that we have in our minds also. It's really easy for us to give up hope and to say to that certain person or that people group that they're just too far off. It's really easy for us to look at the other and say, because you're not like me, the biggest coincidence of all, that I believe everything that God also believes. <laughs> and I, I am the perfect Christian and you are not. It's, it's really easy for us to look out there and say, you are, are, are too far gone. But we don't have permission to give up hope, friends. We do not have permission to look at somebody and say, uh, there's no chance for you to be able to, to receive the gospel right now. God's arm is not too short to reach somebody who wears Patagonia. I wasn't trying to be funny with that. I'm trying to make a contrast. Because his arm is not too short to reach somebody who's wearing a turban. His arm is not too short to reach somebody who, who, who's been telling you for years that they'll never receive. And they've been, they, they don't believe in God. God is silly. His arm is not too short to reach your folks. To reach your, your brother or sister. To reach somebody who you've been just uh, so afraid to talk to in your office. Or somebody that is just so prickly. Their heart might be being worked on even now. Who is Lydia in your life? And how are you praying for your heart to be open to talk to her? Because you never know how much God is working on the heart of somebody else. Something else I was going to say about that. But uh, maybe I should have wrote it down like Tim. <laughs> Anyways, uh, so if your heart's open, you know, um, the Lord can do some work there. So maybe consider uh, a person or a people group that you've just been judging and uh, write that down and start to say, you know what, I'm going to start praying for them. I'm going to start opening my heart up to the possibility that God might be leading them over a period of time gradually to him. And I'd love to partner with him on that. I'd like to move into the story of the prison guard and uh, some thoughts I have on that. But before I do, I'd like to introduce you to two special people, Mr. and Mrs. Sport. Let me get the mic. Hi, my name is Doug Sport, and this is my wife, Lori. And we're sharing uh, how we came to Christ. It was back in 1969, years ago. I was... <laughs> I'll try to get through this. I was a senior in college and uh, up at Michigan Tech. I had spent my freshman year looking for God, trying to find him. 
I was given the sinner's prayer. That didn't seem to work. After about that year, I had given up on ever finding God, ever finding meaning in my life. And I lived a life without God. But in my life, there were some guys that uh, hadn't given up on me. They went to a Baptist church, and they said, Doug, why don't you come with us to hear Dave Wilkerson speak 100 miles away at Marquette, Michigan. I knew I had to go. I had another appointment for that night, but I broke that. And we got on this rickety old church bus, and I headed down to Marquette. As I was on that bus, I knew I was not coming back. Something was going to happen to my life. And I was being compelled to go there. I'm his wife, Lori. And before we talk about um, Marquette, um, I was brought up in a church um, in Northville, Michigan. And as a young girl, I went to high school, and there was this this other girl in our class that was compelled to be a witness for Jesus Christ. She um, tried her hardest to get me to everything from a Billy Graham movie to a David Wilkerson book. She, she gave it to me, and she, then she looked at me and said, like, what's happening in your life? And to tell you the truth, I didn't know what to tell her. She even went to our government class and brought in a tape of David Wilkerson, and it was all about angels. And I still, I still don't know why the teacher allowed that, because I could tell she wasn't very excited about it. So because I was an average student, and I wanted with all my heart to be a teacher, that's the, from the time I was little, I wanted to be a teacher. I couldn't get in to any other school but Northern Michigan University. So I went up there as a freshman, and in my sophomore year, um, I didn't know about drugs much, but we were having a terrible time with drugs on campus. So the community invited an evangelist in. I didn't know that. Um, his name was David Wilkerson. And he, he wrote the book, The Cross and the Switchblade, which I had read. <laughs> and that night where he was giving a lecture on drugs, there was a slot on our program for activities for the campus at Northern Michigan that you could go hear a lecture on drugs. Well, my other roommates and I didn't have a date that night. So we decided hey, why don't we go hear this lecture on drugs? So <laughs> we thought it was a good idea. All of us came to the same conclusion, and we were excited. But about an hour before that event was going to take place, I'm not a very emotional person like this, but my body literally started to tremble. And I didn't know why. I know now, but... At that time, I didn't understand. So I said to my roommate, I said, you know what? I don't care what you think of me. 
we got to go now. I got to be there tonight, and I've got to go now, and I don't want to wait. And they looked at me like I had lost my marbles, which I probably did look like that. But I decided I got to go right now. So we got there, and guess what? It was a church service. A lecture on drugs, that was a surprise to me, but I'd grown up in church, so that was no big deal. And then he started to speak. Well, what he said spoke to my heart. And what he said was you needed a savior. And believe me, there was no question in my life, I needed a savior. I really did. And when he said, now, if you mean business with God tonight, first you'll ask him to be your savior. Then you will read at least five chapters of the Bible a day. No, seriously, five chapters. And then you're going to pray, you're going to get in a a good church, and you're going to witness. And if you don't mean business with God tonight, then don't bother coming down here and giving your life to Christ. Because he wanted us to make sure that we knew that the commitment was forever. And that night I said, I know what kind of life I led, and it sure is awful mess. I knew that I, all I had to do was pray. And that's what I did. I didn't know, you know, conversion or any fancy words. I just, I said, Lord, take my life and use it for your honor and glory. And I started crying, and I thought, what's all this about? But that's okay. That's all right. I didn't understand it all. So I moved forward, and I I looked around me and said, where is everybody? This is such a great message. I couldn't understand why the whole place wasn't getting up and moving down there forward. But I moved down forward, and this this is a sidelight to the story. I came to Christ. I didn't know that. David Wilkerson liked to pray with the people. And then he pointed to what I thought was me. And there was a young man that was standing at the door. And he said, you follow him. So I said, okay. (laughs) That's him. (laughs) It was me she followed. I had seen her. I had seen her standing in the group that had come forward, and I said to God, I'm here to find you, not a girl. (laughs) But I had spent my life trying to find God. And David Wilkerson, who wrote Crossing the Switchblade, which is a story of his work with gangs in Harlem, said that if a person on drugs thinks they can help themselves or kick the habit tomorrow or do one thing for themselves, we cannot help them. But when they're flat on their back in the gutter and they've tried everything and nothing is working, then they'll reach out and we can grab hold. And he said that's the same thing as when you're looking for God. The minute you think you can do something for yourself or do something to find God yourself, you can't. But when you're flat on the back in the gutter, reach out 
and he'll take hold. And he did. I met Lori that night. A year later, we were married. And that's our story. Thank you. Pretty much says it all. I'll uh, close with some brief remarks on the, the Philippian jailer, or what regular people just call a prison guard. Uh, but <laughs> the Bible has the Philippian jailer as my title. I just thought it was a weird title. Um, very similar to their story. It's a it's a moment where they're the 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 prison guard is at a loss and really needs something uh, now. After Paul had had that liberating experience with the young girl uh, who was being tormented by the demon and also being exploited by those ignominious people, they, uh, as I read, weren't very happy with him, put Paul and Silas in jail, and uh, that whole earthquake thing happened that night, which I'm pretty sure has to do with God. It doesn't say that in the story, but I've never heard of an earthquake rattling off handcuffs before. That's... Why I was kind of giggling when I was reading that, because it's just, just in case you were thinking it was a coincidence. Um, and, you know, after that, the, the, the prison guard draws two things, a conclusion and his sword. His conclusion is, is that when people escape, it's going to be uh, his life to pay. And instead of doing what I would have done, and letting him just go through with it and escaping... And taking it out on somebody, even though, you know, they had just been beaten for nothing. And how many of us would have just allowed whatever to happen to happen because they had it coming to them and then escaped? But instead, Paul and Silas stop him and decide to tell him to just, you know, put away your sword. We're all still here. And there's something going on with him. I mean, I'm sure that there's many things you could think of emotionally. He almost took his life and left his family behind. I mean, he's at his wit's end and maybe even coming to grips with the system of the empire and uh, his work for Rome. And he asks them this question, what must I do to be saved? Now, to quote the great movie, The Princess Bride, (laughs) I'm not so sure that word means what you think it means. Um, I say that to myself all the time when I study the Bible. I think that that's a good, uh, healthy thing to do. And, and uh, you know, when you read this line, uh, how must, what must I do to be saved? Uh, it, it's kind of a big word for us nowadays. Saved has a huge religious context. And I uh, don't want to dismantle that in any way. I think that it should. It's a very beautiful thing. Most of us mean saved from hell. When we're talking about that, there's a lot of ideas in the Roman world in the first century about the afterlife, but they weren't really the same as what we have. And so what did he mean in that moment when he said, what must I do to be saved? Well, N.T. Wright, I think, has a good translation of this when he says, sirs, what must I do to get out of this mess? Now, what is the mess that he's in? Like I said before, maybe he's realizing that working for Rome is wrong. The empire is doing him wrong. This whole thing is wrong. And maybe he's seeing that these two guys they wrongfully put into prison have only done good things. And he's realized, I'm on the wrong team. 
Either way, he's at an emotional point where he's feeling very vulnerable, and this moment really matters. And what he gets is two things, real and simple. Do you believe anymore that just telling somebody about Jesus is a real solution to their real problems right now? You can gauge that and test that in your own life. If somebody comes to you and they're at their wit's end, they're saying, how do I get out of this mess that I'm in? Is your first response to mansplain? Is your first response to, uh, to fix it with money or to counsel? Or is, is your first response something that you believe is really going to help offering them Jesus? I mean, they say to him, in this moment of weakness, trust in Jesus. That's how this is going to work. And maybe sometimes we need to just re-up what we believe about trusting in Jesus. And if that really is something that really helps people now. Because I believe that it will. I believe that if everybody in this world trusted Jesus, it would be better for them now. Not just later. Not just in some ambiguous time in the age to come. Right now, this will be better for your life. When you trust Jesus, you receive identity. You go from orphan to son. You go from a place of lost to a place of found. Now, you're able to, to, to come to a father who says to you, I love you. I want to give you identity. I want to give you purpose. I want to tell you why you're here. That's good for people right now. And if you don't believe that anymore, then maybe you need to start trusting in Jesus right now and start to feel uh, that overwhelming presence of being called to a son or a daughter of the king. It better be real whatever we're giving somebody in a moment of crisis. Because they don't need something that, that is just fluffy and ambiguous. And the, it, real and simple. Paul doesn't give him Romans 7 in this moment right now. <laughs> He doesn't give them some complicated, uh, you know, riddle about what to do. Uh, He says, trust in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Do we feel the pressure to make it more complicated than that? When somebody's in a place of crisis, emotionally or spiritually, uh, somebody's in a place where they say, like Doug said, just on their back, reaching up to heaven. Do we want to make it more complicated? No. We want to keep it simple. And real and say, trust in Jesus. Because what's going to happen is more than a conversion. If you lay the foundation of somebody trusting in Jesus, of course, being a convert is a great thing, but we're called to make someone a disciple. And a good convert is always going to turn into a disciple. And a good disciple is going to be a convert every single day. And so. Last thing I really just want to say then is as we continue for, the, for years to come to talk about what's wise and how to be intentional and how to be real and how to say something uh, that's simple and, and who's Lydia and who's the Roman and all this stuff that uh, we deal with on a daily basis. Just remember one thing. It isn't uh, more about the how than it is about the who. Once we start making this whole thing or witnessing or whatever about the how, we turn it into some sort of magic thing. Uh, and we turn it into some sort of, we make it weird. But once we turn it into the who, and continue to, and to, continue to push people towards trust in Jesus, 
then that's going to be the thing that really helps people, uh, not just in that moment, but every day for the rest of their life. To trust Jesus. Yes, the Roman guard with his, uh, his life, his family, his finances, or whatever, but to trust him with our family and life and finances and plan, especially if you are in a mess right now. And so, if you're willing to just uh, pray with me and pause for a moment and reflect uh, upon all this stuff this morning. Father, if there's any of us who have a major disconnect between our faith and our life, I pray that you would just put one thing in our heart to be intentional with. One thing for us to be able to just sort of plan on doing uh, with courage and with consistency for the sake of the people around us to be able to see that, that, that we could confirm to them uh, what we believe about you is, is to be true. I just want to pray for any of us... Um, who have a closed heart towards a person or people or race or, or someone, that you would just pr- put them on our heart to be somebody that you can still love and that you can still reach. Give us a, a fresh, you know, a fresh heart for all the lost people around us. Help us not to be hypocrites and believe that we could be reached, but they couldn't. If any of us are starting to feel like believing in you is flimsy and less real than what uh, solutions or anything that we could come up with is, I pray that you would just reveal yourself in such a real way to us right now, the, the true substance that you really are. Just like the day when, when Peter and them had locked the real locks on their real doors and made that real fish and the risen Christ so real, you walked right through the walls. Help us to believe that you are real and you're a help, a real help in time of need for people who are in a life crisis and a crisis of faith. And give us the freedom as your sons and daughters to keep it simple. To continue to just tell people around us to put our trust in you and just let it go. Yep, receive the blessing of the Lord as you go this week and uh, interact with Philippian jailers and prison guards and Lydia's all around in your life. The Lord will bless you and keep you. The Lord will lift his countenance upon you favorably. He'll turn his face towards you and he'll give you his peace. Thank you, Lord. Amen. All right, friends careful out there if you see somebody stuck on the side of the road help them they are probably trying to make it to the nine o'clock service